Well, let us continue in worship this morning as we consider God's word in the book of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. With everything that is going on in the world, there's really one place where we can go, and that is to God's inerrant, sufficient, powerful word. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, for the sake of context, through verse 22. Please listen to God's word this morning. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have heard and seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The Lord blessed the reading of his word. As many of you know, the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, led by men such as Luther, Calvin, and many others, was built upon certain principles or pillars of truth that held it together even in the face of fears, opposition, and struggle. These pillars of truth were essentially five, all of which were encapsulated in five Latin phrases. We know them today as the five solas, very good, of the Reformation. Sola is a Latin word that means only or alone. And these solas are sola gratia, which means grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, solus Christus, Christ alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone, and finally, soli Deo gloria, glory to God alone. These five Latin phrases were the, the fuel that kept the Reformation going and growing, and they are still very relevant and helpful to us in the 21st century. The main reason I love these little Latin phrases has to do with the fact that they can pack massive amounts of truth in just two words. For instance, the phrase solus Christus or Christ alone has a life-changing power. When properly understood, those two Latin words can bring true reformation to a person, a family, a church, and even societies. In fact, it would not be an exaggeration to say that the Christian life is to a great extent the ongoing process of knowing both intellectually and experientially what solus Christus means. And you could do the same with all the other four Latin phrases that we mentioned. They all have a never-ending implications and applications for life. But there is another Latin phrase that, at least in my personal judgment, holds equal weight as those five solas. It also consists of two Latin words. And it packs massive amounts of truth. And it is the foundational conviction to which the sermon title refers. And I call it foundational because this conviction lies at the very core of the Christian life. It is the fuel that energizes the Christian zeal. It is the fire that burns the dross of hidden sin. And it is the source that empowers us in our Christian sanctification. In order to show you what this phrase is, please follow along as I read verse 19 once again of Acts 4. But Peter and John answered them, 
whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. Did you catch it? Did you catch the Latin phrase? Of course not, because it's not in Latin. But let me tell you about it. Before I tell you what the phrase is, let me explain how I saw it. In my daily Bible reading plan, there are three books that I read every single day. Psalms, Proverbs, and Acts. All the other books are in a constant rotation, but Acts is always on the list. I read it every single day. There's a little phrase in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, that has always caught my attention. Just four words. In the sight of. In the sight of. According to the lexicon, that, that little phrase can also be translated as in the presence of. Theologians in the past have captured the essence of this all-encompassing truth with the Latin phrase, codum deo, codum deo, or in or before the face of God. And this was Peter's and John's foundational conviction. They knew themselves to live their entire lives, codum Deo, or in the sight of God. And it simply does not get any more foundational than this, brothers and sisters. Codam Deo, in the sight of God, is where we live every single moment of our lives. And it is the reason why I ultimately reject the distinction between the sacred and the secular. How can we ever do anything secular? If we always live, coram deo, in the sight of God. Even in the midst of a hostile interrogation, the apostles did not forget in whose presence they lived and moved and had their being, to borrow the words from Acts 17, 28. In that moment, as they stood before this religious council, the physical presence of the rulers of Israel was secondary to the invisible yet ever-abiding presence of God. Undoubtedly, the apostles lived, quotam Deo, they lived in the sight of God. So my main argument for this morning, then, is that living in the sight of God, living, quotam Deo, was the foundational conviction of the apostles as reflected in three primary realms. The realm of Christian ethics in verse 19, the realm of evangelistic engagement in verse 20, and the realm of gospel ministry, verses 21 and 22. I will expand on each of those points, and then we'll spend some time in the application. But I want to begin by speaking of the idea of codam deo, or living in the sight or before God, in more general terms first. So think of this as a brief theological introduction. If you're following along in the notes, Here's where you begin to fill in the blanks if you want. Living Coram Deo is the central conviction of authentic biblical faith. Living Coram Deo is the central conviction of authentic biblical faith. What I'm trying to say is simply this. The apostles knew themselves that living outside of the sight of God, hidden from his sight, was a logical impossibility. Certainly, the apostles would have known this as an axiomatic truth. Axiomatic meaning unquestionable or self-evident. As Jewish men, they would have been familiar with passages such as Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8, where David asked, 
Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. This, by the way, explains why the actions of prophet Jonah were so illogical, so self-evidently nonsensical. The Bible says that when God called Jonah to go preach repentance to Nineveh, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, away from where? From the presence of the Lord. Either Jonah didn't have access to Psalm 139, or he forgot to read it that morning during his quiet time. In any case, Jonah was trying to do the impossible. We know how the story unfolded. It didn't go very well for him, at least not during his ongoing rebellion against God's call upon his life. But the point is this. Jonah's misery was the direct outcome of his attempt to flee from God's presence. At least for a short time in his life, Jonah decided to not live, quotum Deo, to hide from the sight of God. As a result, he ended up in the belly of a big fish. Interestingly, while inside the belly of the fish, as Jonah was coming to repentance, what did he pray? He prayed this, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried, and you heard my voice. It took Jonah a sea of misery for his mind to finally come to grips with the reality that even if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The omnipresence of the Lord is the central conviction of an authentic biblical faith. And the implications are massive. Consider the first massive implications of this as we see them exemplified in the life and ministry of the apostles. Number one, living coram Deo is the determining factor uh, in practical Christian ethics. Living coram Deo is the determining factor in practical Christian ethics. Verse 19, after being charged by the religious authorities of Israel to not speak any longer uh, about or in the name of Jesus, we read in verse 19, But Peter and John answer them whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. Speaking of Jonah, I see some interesting parallels here between his story and the story of the apostles. First, both Jonah and the apostles were charged with the same task, go and preach the word. Second, both Jonah and the apostles knew their audience could be hostile, Nineveh, in the case of Jonah, and the whole world in the case of the apostles. But here, once again, is the big difference. Jonah wanted to be away from God's sight. The apostles had no other desire but to know that they were in God's sight. And as we can see, because they lived coram Deo, they knew right from wrong. Did you get that? Because they lived Coram Deo in the sight of God, they knew right from wrong. When they said whether it is right, they opened the door, as it were, into the realm of what? Ethics. Ethics. They essentially invited the rulers of Israel to enter into a discussion on ethics. Now, what is ethics? Ethics deals with right and wrong, good and evil. And don't miss that little fact. For the apostles... God alone 
determines what is right. God alone determines what is right. How do I know that? Because right and wrong are decided always in the sight of God. Or, quorum Deo. Just use the Latin phrase, it's cooler. Notice with me that Peter and John, by saying this, made an appeal to authority in order to justify their actions. This is also confirmed by, by what Peter tells the rulers at the end of verse 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. In other words, Peter and John were saying this. Here's my, my paraphrase. You, rulers, have a standard by which you determine whether it is right for us to continue to preach in the name of Jesus or not. But we also have our own standard. Our standard is God. The difference between you and us is that we are operating at different levels, using different standards of measurement. But in any case, you do what you have to do. We will submit to God. God decides what is right. And the decision has been made for us by God himself. We must preach Christ. That is right. You see, the rulers of Israel had a standard of good and evil, and it was this. Whatever promotes our authority is good. Whatever stands against our authority is evil. For the apostles, the standard was this. Whatever promotes God's authority is good. Whatever stands against his authority is evil. This is why they were reaching mutually exclusive conclusions. The rulers wanted to silence the apostles, while the apostles wanted to shout even louder. Now, if I had to define the ethics of the rulers of Israel, it would be something like called consequentialism. Consequentialism, which says this, the consequences of an action are the only standard of right and wrong. Here's how it worked. The rulers thought, if the apostles continue to preach, the consequences could be that we lose authority. Because of that, what they are doing is wrong. At the center of their ethical standard were the consequences this action would have on them. At the center of the apostles' standard was God, because they lived their entire lives, quotum Deo, in the sight of God. And it is precisely at this point where we need to take a few moments to consider the important implications for us. Herein lies the critical relevancy of verse 19. Ethics, meaning the debate about right and wrong, is at the very heart of the attacks being launched against the Christian faith in our day. This has not gone away Neither will it go away anytime soon. This is the new charge coming from the atheistic and secular mind against the church. The challenge being thrown at the church by the unbelieving world is not so much about denying the existence of God or whether we can know him at all, although at the end of the day it is all connected. But the real challenge to the Christian faith is happening within the realm of ethics. In other words, what the unbelieving world is saying at bottom is that it is no longer right, it is no longer good to continue to affirm 
and live by the Christian standard. God can no longer tell us what to think or how to live. In fact, it is ethically wrong to do so. That's what the world is telling us. It is ethically wrong to live by the standard of God. Now, the revelation this yields is quite astonishing. These changes that we are witnessing in American society and other parts of the world, such as Canada, are astonishing because now the unbelieving world is seeking to stand in judgment over God. So when the judges of the Supreme Court legalized abortion or same-sex unions, they were essentially establishing themselves as the one with the authority to determine right from wrong. And what they said is shocking. We know better than God. Our ethic is superior. And this is the reason Christian ethics and worldly ethics always collide. Christian ethics, the decision between right and wrong, is always in the sight of God. Christians have no alternative. Christians, we have no alternative because in Him we live and move and have our being. Kodam Deo is the core reality of our human existence. How ironic. The uneducated and common men, Peter and John, stood valiantly and courageously before this council of men and knew right from wrong because they lived Kodam Deo. What does this teach us? What, at the very least, this teaches us that the more a Christian grows in his or her awareness of living in the sight of God and under his word, the less confusion there will be regarding right and wrong. But I will return to that at the end. Now, the rightness or wrongness being discussed in this account had to do with a very particular action on the part of the apostles. It had to do with preaching Christ, which is our next point. Living Coram Deo is the leading motive for bold evangelistic engagement. Living Coram Deo is the leading motive for bold evangelistic engagement. Verse 20, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I love how clear it is, at least in the apostle's mind, that living Coram Deo had immediate and unquestionable practical implications for them. Since right and wrong can only be known as we submit ourselves to God, then the answer to whether we should preach Christ had already been given and not by the rulers of Israel. The apostles lived Coram Deo, which by default also meant that they saw themselves as living within the stream of prophetic fulfillment. They knew, for instance, what God had promised Abraham back in the book of Genesis chapter 15. They knew that Abraham's offspring, this singular descendant, would bring blessings to all the families of the earth, to all the nations. They also knew that Jesus was the fulfillment of this promise and that through the Holy Spirit, he was actually making it happen in the world. Thus, they stood before these rulers and said, we have been charged by the Lord himself to go and speak about what we have seen and heard, his life, his death, his resurrection. If you want to stand in our way, do so. But that doesn't change the fact that preaching Jesus is and it will always be right no matter what you say. Living Coram Deo, living in the sight of God, was the very heart of their boldness. If right and wrong 
are determined by God and by God alone, then all they needed to know to stand before these rulers and authorities with boldness was that Jesus the Lord, whom God made both Lord and Christ, told them to go. Therefore, it is right. So here's a little nugget of profound truth for you to consider. Preaching Christ is always the ethical thing to do. To be silent in the face of hostility and opposition is unethical. Thus, our ethics is not consequentialism, but codum deo. We are in the sight of God. We must live accordingly. We possess a theocentric ethic, meaning centered on God. So make no mistake about this. The war against God-centered ethics, which was the apostolic view of ethics, and the only alternative for Christians, can take many forms. But one of the most subtle forms is through the normalization of sinful behavior. The normalization of sinful behavior. If you can normalize sin, you can desensitize people. And soon enough, the idea of calling people to repentance begins to look antiquated, harsh, and unnecessary. And then the stage is set for compromise, and the downgrade begins. Here's an example of the subtle war against Coram Deo theocentric ethics. And I will say this in the form of a question. I really need you to consider this. Why is it that people engaged in sexual sin, identified as LGBTQ, are called a community? Why are they called a community? Why is it called the LGBTQ community? As far as I know, we don't do that with any other sin. We don't have the greedy community, the thieving community. Think of any other, other sin that we know to be sin, that we affirm to be sin. We don't form communities around sin. Why are people engaged in homosexual sin labeled a community? Think about it. We are grace community, church. That entails several things, among which is the fact that we share a common identity. We are a community identified by the fact that we have been saved by grace. We are a grace community. That's what communities are. They have a shared sense of identity. Brothers and sisters, if we keep calling LGBTQ a community, we are essentially endorsing what they say about their sexual identity. Moreover, the word community is the strategy behind the normalization of sin. And beyond that, I think the very word effectively reveals the fact that there is an agenda. And the agenda is acceptance without repentance. Acceptance without repentance. But as Peter and John said, we cannot but speak about what we have seen and heard because we live coram deo. We must continue to preach Christ in whom there is forgiveness of sins for all who repent and call on him as Lord. Why must we insist on this? 
Why must we persevere in preaching Christ? Why must we not be silent in the face of all these issues confronting us in our day? First, because we must live Coram Deo. Second, living Coram Deo emboldens us to engage the world with the gospel. But third, we must insist on preaching Christ because of our final point. Living Coram Deo is the great objective, is the great objective of faithful gospel ministry. Verse 21 and 22, when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Notice the effects that the ministry of the apostles had on others. They were all praising God. The litmus test for any ministry is what it does on people's lives in relation to their view of God. Notice that the great objective of faithful gospel ministry is not to draw attention or create attachment to mere men. Faithful gospel ministry knows nothing about personality cults where the pastor becomes the hero. Faithful gospel ministry will produce people whose attention is drawn exclusively to God in Christ, or to put it more in, in more illustrative ways, we want people to go from doing what is right in their own eyes, as in the Old Testament days of the judges, to doing what is right in the sight of God, as in the New Testament days of the apostles. A God-glorifying people are a people who are learning what it means to live Coram Deo. Now, as we enter into our final section of this sermon, let me address one potential objection to everything we have considered so far. In light of the big events taking place around the world, such as the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which is very real and very painful to so many, especially for some in our own, among our own people, some might be tempted to think that doing this is a waste of time. Why are we speaking about living Coram Deo? It seems like such a detached and abstract idea, but I beg to differ. Living Coram Deo is how God changes the world through his people. Living Coram Deo is how God changes the world through his people. What else could Jesus have meant when he said, you are the salt of the earth? The biggest threat to humanity is not war. Rather, the biggest threat to humanity is when the people of God stop living Coram Deo. So, you might not be able to do anything to remedy foreign conflict, but you have been placed in your own context. And it is in this context that you must begin. The world does not change one nation at a time, but it does change one person at a time, one family at a time, one church at a time, one town at a time. So please carefully consider these points. An invitation to meditation. I know it sounds cheesy, but anyway. For those of you discouraged, by a sense of loneliness. For those of you discouraged by a sense of loneliness, Coram Dale, he is always there. As Joshua 
and the people of God were getting ready to begin their campaign and enter the promised land, which involved facing many powerful enemies all around, the very heart and soul of their encouragement came from knowing one single truth, which came in the form of a promise from God to Joshua. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Nothing, nothing could be more discouraging to the Christian life than thinking we are alone. But thanks be to God, we never are. We are always Kodam Deo. It would have been easy for Peter and John to compromise on that day as they faced opposition, but they did not compromise because they were never alone. They were in the sight of God, and so are you. God will not leave you. For those of you involved in secret sin, Kodam Deo, he sees. So, we want to change the world, don't we? We want to change the world. Let me put a thought in your head as we consider how all this applies to Christians being salt and light as they live Coramdale, and you tell me if this is not applicable. What would happen to the entire pornographic industry? What would happen to the entire pornographic industry if all Christians just in the United States alone, lived Coram Deo. Let me put it in different words. What would happen to the entire pornographic industry if no Christian, male or female, engaged in it because they knew themselves to live in the presence of God? It would be a devastating blow to the kingdom of darkness. So do you, do you want to be the salt and light it begins in the intimacy of your life. It begins in the intimacy of your life because even in the intimacy of your life, you live Coram Deo, always in the sight of God. As 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. If you compromise in the intimacy of your life, don't expect to be a world changer. For those of you who are unbelievers, Kodam Deo, you cannot hide. You cannot hide. If you are an unbeliever this morning, let me say that I understand the anatomy of your thinking. I don't have to know you. The Bible tells me so. Here's how it works. Do you remember what happened in the Garden of Eden right after Adam and Eve sinned? The immediate consequences is that they hid from God. Why? For the simple yet awful reason that sin reverses the original joy and peace of being in the presence of God. Sin destroys our desire to live Coram Deo in the sight of God. But as Hebrews 4.13 says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. If you say to be an unbeliever this morning, here's my word to you. Stop pretending like you can hide from God. Because you can't. You are accountable to him and you know it. Today is the day of repentance. 
Come to Christ Jesus in faith and you will be forgiven. Believe on him and you will be saved. No more need for you to run away. For those of you who are heavy laden, Coramdeo, he sees us in Christ. What a beautiful thing. If you are under a sense of condemnation, but you are a believer in Christ, I have this to say to you. You have a friend who also lived all his life, Coramdeo, in the sight of God. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. But Jesus came to do what? To bring us back to God, as we read in 1 Peter 3.18. This means that Jesus came to reverse the effects of the fall, meaning Jesus came to restore the joy and the peace that comes from living Coramdeo. So rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because in Christ, you have been reconciled to him. So again, I say, rejoice. For those of you becoming fearful, Coramdeo, fear him. Fear God. One theologian said this, and I quote, Because God is God, the absolute Lord and lawgiver, fear of God is the essence of sanity and common sense. End quote. I couldn't agree more. This is confirmed by Scripture where we read in Proverbs 9.10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom, not the end of wisdom, the beginning of wisdom. Do you want to be wise? Where do you start? Fearing God. Fearing the Lord. You can be wise apart from fearing God. But there's another component to the fear of God. In Proverbs 8.13, we read, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Do you hate evil? Don't allow any other fear to take the place that only belongs to God, fear the Lord and be zealous for everything that is good. For those of you losing your Christian zeal, Kodam Deo, he is with us to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, the only reason I stand before you every Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, knowing what is happening in the world is because I know Christ is with us. Preach the gospel of Jesus is the right thing to do in season and out of season, when it is popular and when it is unpopular. Don't let the corrupted ethics of the world convince you otherwise. Don't let the corrupted, corrupted ethics of the world convince you otherwise. For those of you compartmentalizing your life, Coram Deo, all things are done unto him. All things are done unto him. Do you realize that you cannot even speak a word outside of the presence of God? How is your speech? How do you use your words? Is it honoring God? You know where the word profanity comes from? I read this last night. And I thought it was pretty cool. Profanity, profane. Pro is a Latin word. Pro meaning before and fanum meaning temple. So it comes to mean outside or before the temple. So it is speaking as though you're not accountable to God because you're not in his presence. But brothers and sisters, we're always in his presence. Even your speech matters. The Christian life is theological living 
living in light of God's all-encompassing presence. This, by the way, was the Puritan idea of the Christian life. They were convinced that no area of life in this world should be isolated from God's rule and reign in Jesus Christ. This being the case, you cannot pretend as though some areas of your life can successfully be lived outside of God's presence and not for his glory. When Jesus calls a man to himself by his spirit, he doesn't just call part of the man, he calls the whole man. This, of course, doesn't mean you need to become a monk. But it does mean you go to work as a disciple of Jesus. You go to school as a disciple of Jesus. Neither does this mean that everything we do is sin. But it does mean that everything we do matters. Everything we do matters. For those of you living in ethical confusion, Kodam Adeo, know your God. Ethical certainty comes from knowing God and knowing God can only happen as we invest time in the word. You cannot live Coram Deo if you don't know the God in whose presence you live and move and have your being. Moreover, only in the knowledge of God through his word can we be strong in a world that wants us to be weak. On that day, the council of religious leaders wanted the apostles to behave as ethically weak men, but they were strong because they knew their God, and they lived Coram Deo. I want to close with this final thought, and I'll leave you alone. Consider, consider the generational impact of living Coram Deo. Because the apostles lived Coram Deo, because they lived in the sight of God, you and I are here this morning. Give that some thought. Because they lived Coram Deo, you and I are here this morning as Christians. Likewise, living Coram Deo today will impact the generations of tomorrow. Therefore, live Coram Deo in the presence of God today for the sake of your children, for the sake of your grandchildren, and for the sake of your great-grandchildren Renounce the things in your life that oppose God's kingdom and the lordship of Jesus. Walk in integrity. Be faithful at work. Love your spouse. Discipline your children. Be wise with your resources. Be bold for the truth. Hate what is evil and do all the things unto the glory of God because you're always in his sight. Even if the entire world should reject the Lord, let us, Live always, Coram Deo, in the sight of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word. And once again, help us to learn what it means daily. For those in this room who are engaged in any activity that clearly defies your holiness and your lordship, I pray that you will help us all to repent and to cling to the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know that we cannot pretend to change the world if we are not living faithfully to you. And Father, we pray for the church in the Ukraine. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, that they will know themselves to live always in the sight of God, that you have not abandoned your church, your people in the Ukraine. And we pray that you will give them boldness 
that even in the face of very trying times, the church, your people in the Ukraine will be a faithful testimony to your grace and to the fact that you are God. And so help us, Lord, to remember them in our prayers and may your will be done all over the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.